Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening.
So the first night, uh, last night, we've been here just one day. <laughs> I said that when you sit, the world comes to you, comes to meet you. And um, when we do anything, the world is always coming to meet us. And uh, if we pay close attention, we don't even really know what direction the world's coming in from. Is it internal? Is it external? And um, if you're so busy uh, inside your own skull, inside this bag of skin, then uh, you don't know that the world is coming to meet you. And when it does come to meet you, uh, it's annoying. It's in the way. Because you have plans for yourself. So, what I love about sitting practice is it's the foundation. When you sit still, you can really see what's going on in your life. And if you're honest, really sit and you're honest with yourself, which takes some courage, I think, then it'll probably motivate you to go deeper in your practice. But if you sit and you're not really looking, then you're just sitting there and talking to yourself, which most people call thinking. But actually, usually when you're thinking, you're still the main character. Just like when you're dreaming. So when you sit, the best way to begin, I think, is just to really give a lot of attention to your posture. A lot of attention to the body. Um, nowadays, when we talk about meditation, we talk about watching the body, noting the body. Uh, but if you look at the old scriptures, especially uh, the way the Buddha taught meditation, he always uses words like touching. Touching the body. Touching the breath. Feeling the body. Feeling the breath. Not so much of a sense of an observer being apart from the experience. So when you sit, to feel the movement of the inhale and the exhale. as something that's not separate from you. So it's not like there's a me back here that's watching the inhale or the exhale. There's just inhaling and exhaling. And the paradox of following the breath is that the more intimate you become with your breathing, the less personal it feels. So that at first, it just feels like, oh, there's this breath. It's coming and it's going. But then when you really get into feeling the breath, um, there's just feeling breathing, but it's not personal anymore. And I think this is true for anything that we experience. Mm -hmm. That the closer you get to it, the less personal it is. Mm -hmm. <coughs> 
because there's no separation between the feeling of the experience or an observer that's having the experience. Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times when we learn meditation practice, uh, especially nowadays, there's so much focus on this observer, this kind of witness, witnessing of the experience. And when I hear that, I always think to myself, that witnessing is exactly the problem we have mm -hmm. in our society, in our own minds, is this experience of not being intimate with what's happening, but just watching it. Like when someone says, oh, I care about the election. That's not the same thing as saying, I care for what happens in the election. When someone says, oh, I care about that, I always think, well, what are you doing about it? So just caring about something is, again, this kind of separation. But when you care for something, you, you really begin to um, have love for it. Most of us think, oh, if I love something, then I'll take care of it. But I think the opposite is true. That when you really start taking care of something, uh, then you'll fall in love with it. Like parents. Does anybody here have to look after parents or family members? Well, you don't love it right away. But then when you really start to give over to the process, and you really start to take care of somebody, or you take care of a piece of land. We were talking at lunchtime about uh, a British artist who makes gardens in very small areas, like on sidewalks. Mm -hmm. So you take care of something so small, and then it helps you fall more deeply in love with it. So you start with the breath. Because most of us are not deeply in love with our lives. We're observers, and we're still trying to get better. And then if that's our attitude, then the whole of spiritual practice becomes a self-improvement project. And then we miss what's at the heart of it. So we start just by observing the breath, but uh, quickly we're going to move from observing the breath or witnessing the breath to just feeling breathing. You see, that's what I mean by becoming more intimate with the experience. And when you feel the breath, then this observer starts to fade away. And then there's just breathing. And it's so intimate that there's no me that's like back here going, oh yeah, I'm doing very well. Very spiritual. <laughs> and when you can do it with your breath, then you can start to do it with other phenomena that move through awareness, like a frustration. In psychoanalysis, there's a term I like very much called foreclosure, which is when uh, something is emerging from the unconscious, 
and we shut it off. We close it too quickly. Or we all know this in relationship, you know, like somebody says, oh, I really want to talk to you about something difficult. Mm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have a minute. (laughs) And they start talking, you're not even listening. So when you sit, you, you, you set up the posture in your body, which becomes a container, so that you can begin to trust that whatever emerges, you can be one with that. Knowing that whatever you become one with is going to shift, is going to change. As opposed to this idea that I think all of us have inherited of meditation being a process of just watching just watching, observing, witnessing. Because witnessing has no ethical or moral uh, energy in it. We just just watch the world. But actually, um, when you're closer than that, you care for it. So there's the stability of meditative practice and the passion to do something. So we don't separate our stillness and our activity, that they're connected. This is so important. about something technical because when you have this practice where you're observing the thoughts coming and going Mm -hmm. it's it's that's yeah that's what I've been doing and then you're like oh there's something coming you let it go and so on so it's different the difference now is that now you something is coming and then you feel it and and you go back to feeling yeah you're feeling and then you're not clinging and then you let it go again well you don't even have to let it go it's just there it's going yeah the term letting go is a little funny because it, it gives you the sense that you actually can hold on to something. <laughs> yeah. But actually that's not true. So you don't even need to let go. We're like in post-letting go practice. Okay. We've already let go. Yeah. So now what we're going to do is when something arises, we're just going to let it arise and let it change. And we're not going to let go of it because we were never holding it in the first place. Right? So it's just a little different in how you frame the experience. Um, So always coming back to the feeling body, feeling breathing, feeling boredom, feeling joy, feeling peace, feeling anger, all these shifting energies. But you don't have to be like, okay, I was holding on to that, I've got to let go of that. Because that's a whole other way of clinging. Yeah. That I have to let go of. Yeah, yeah. Um. <coughs> Just sit there. I always tell people, don't meditate. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if Vipassana people. Because they have such good technique, it gets in the way. There was a question about, yeah. what, what's your name? 
Anna. Anna, okay. Yeah. It, it was about getting headache yeah. while while sitting and meditating. I guess I was really hard trying to meditate. Because I had this uh, for uh, maybe a year I've been interested about mindfulness and like uh -huh. uh, learning to meditate that way. Mm -hmm. But then I went to a Vedic meditation course uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and then I found a bit conf conflict between these two. Yeah. And then uh, when we were sitting and uh, the breath thing here, yeah. I, I felt like uh, the breath starts to make these kind of things and then my mind says to me like no this is not the right way of concentrating now you're kind of making yourself to this dreaming uh, area yeah. the kind of transcendenting area that yeah. has been taught in the Vedic meditation uh -huh. Uh -huh. and then I said to myself this is wrong this is wrong bad and then uh, <laughs> and then you got a headache yeah that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> So your body is telling you whether the technique is working. <laughs> <laughs> or not working. So um, there are three characteristics of mindfulness in meditation practice. The first is no judgment. So when you're sitting, there's no judgment happening. Okay? The second is that there's no commentary. Okay? So if you're sitting there and you're talking to yourself, oh wow, this is a really, really good set. And I'm sure the person next to me can really feel the energy of my practice. Um, that's not meditation practice. So the first characteristic, no judgment. The second characteristic, no commentary. And the, the third comments part, come, and the judgment. Oh, so there's a comment. So, so a comment comes up, right? Yeah. We come back to the feeling of the breath, and then the comment changes. But th there's something different between a comment and a commentary. Yeah. Right? Commentary is when you take the comments and you string them together. You glue them together. Like watching a movie. <laughs> or a train. Yeah. Right? You have a train, and you're going to add, oh, another car, another car other car. And it's exhausting, this engine has to like keep all this going. Do you have trains here? <laughs> Canada, we still have trains. The third characteristic is the intention is there to wake up to present experience. Okay? So it's a little bit different than some Vedic meditation where the intention is to get out of our experience. Okay? So here we're turning around and we're actually making the body and what's occurring in our moment-to-moment -moment experience, we're making that the foundation of the practice. Yeah. So should it, uh, if it tries to, like, the mind falls, kind of fall asleep to the medic style, should... should uh, should I try to stop it or just let it happen? Which happened? Like, then when, when you ring the bell, the clown, then yeah. I was like, oh! Oh, wait. so then you weren't there. Yeah. Yeah, so if I ring the bell and you're like, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> you weren't there. Yeah. So, I don't want you to go anywhere. Okay, so, so what we're trying to do in the meditation practice is wake up 
to the changing flow of the experience in our moment-to-moment way. Which goes against almost every Abrahamic religious doctrine, which says that the goal of spiritual practice is to have a union with what doesn't change. Mm. With what's eternal. With so God. God. The God is eternal and unchanging. It's unchanging. Yeah. So in a way, our meditation technique is to do exactly the opposite. Mm. Is to say, actually, we're going to become totally yoked to our moment-to-moment changing experience. Mm. And we're going to teach ourselves how to find stability in that, and then how to build a life on that flow, in that river. In Canada, and I'm sure here, there are these flies that they call pond skaters. I don't know if you have them. They they, uh, stand on the top of the water, usually in small lakes that don't have very much wind or in rivers where they're pooling. And the way they hunt is they stand on the top and when they sense a vibration, they go sideways. And I always think pond skaters are the perfect um, mascot for the practice in the way that I'm trying to express it. Because they have as their ground something that's fluid. And I think this is a place where we all struggle in our life because our lives are impermanent. And we know this philosophically. But we have so much trouble carving a life out of what's changing. So I think that um, when we create our worldwide cult our mascot is going to be the pond skater. We're all going to have it tattooed before, before we all uh, go up in flames together. I have to grow a beard again. Never mind. Okay. Uh, are there any other questions about meditation practice before we start looking at this essay that, uh, that I brought? So yep. the first thing was this intention to wake up to the... Yeah. So, the fir- so the first one is no judgment. The second one is without commentary. And the third one is that there's an intention to wake up to our moment-to-moment experience in the here and now. Yeah. And, and, and that might sound like a small thing, but it's actually usually the opposite of what most of us are trying to do in meditation even if you don't realize it, that a lot of us in meditation, we're trying to get peace. We're trying to have a mind state different than the mind state that's presenting itself. And I've always read the definition of aversion as trying to reach for a mind state that's not the mind state that you have right now. So how do we just let the mind state we have right now be the mind state? But from a place of stability. 
opposed to a place of being identified with it. And this is the trick in meditative practice. And I strongly believe that even if you don't have good technique, it works. So would this still be shamatha meditation? Yes. Well, yes and no. Um, Maybe I'll get back to that another, another time. But pretend it is. Okay, any other questions before we keep going? Okay, so the theme uh, this year is renunciation and relationship. And I hope last night I sketched out very broadly um, what I mean by that. And I thought the way we could explore this together is through an essay written about (coughs) ten years ago by uh, Norman Fisher. Uh, My partner Karina's teacher is Norman Fisher, and uh, so, you know, we read everything he writes. And uh, he's a wonderful guy. He's still alive. He lives in California. Uh, He's an advisor for us at Center of Gravity. He comes to teach. He's coming to teach in a couple months. And um, he's also a really good writer, really good thinker. Um, So we don't live in a monastery on the surface. But I think that the way he writes about the stages of living at a monastery are actually the stages of spiritual practice, which are actually the stages of relationship. Or, as Bodil said so clearly this morning, she went through all the stages just in the meditation practice this morning. (laughs) So that's the interesting thing about stages, right? Sometimes you can see them as like a 10-year cycle, or sometimes you see them in 10 minutes. So I thought if we read this essay together, then we can explore a little bit about how our practice matures. And it doesn't matter if you're applying this to uh, your relationship to uh, your body, your relationship to your yoga practice, or whatever practice you practice. I think anything that you practice every day can become a spiritual practice. When you really go deep into it and let it be a craft. I've been thinking a lot lately that we should change the discussion from a spiritual practice to a practice of craft. Because I think that's what we're doing. We're learning how to craft a life that's more dear to us and others than uh, trying to be spiritual. So, uh, Last week I gave a, ta- a TED talk. Does anybody watch these things on TV or internet or what? It's the same thing now. Um, so that, the, the talk was about, and it, it comes out I think in a week on YouTube, but it, it's, it's about... The, the, the thesis of the talk is that we should scrap the term spirituality. We'll, we'll see if it gets any help. <laughs> okay, so. Um, can we just take turns reading, maybe? Uh, and we'll go through a few paragraphs. Uh, who wants to start? Okay. 
Thank you for volunteering. Eight stages of monastic life by Zetetsu Norman Fisher. Religious texts make monastic life sound like something very deep and very constant. Like some life that has been the same for a thousand years, timeless and seamless. In a way, this is really true. Underneath who any of us are is another person, the monk, who is living a true and perfect life. I believe that all of us have this monk in us. All of us want to live this life of silence and perfection. And this life does go on in us, underneath our other life. When we're completely out of touch with it, we suffer a lot. We run around looking for something we can't seem to find, and our lives don't work. And when we are in touch with it, more or less, as we are in a retreat, or even in a few moments of practice, or at the beach, or on a long hike, or alone sometimes under the stars, we feel home. Then we can approach others and a complicated world with a measure of equanimity. Somebody else I heard over there volunteer, Romana. So this is what I mean by the monastic life. The way of wholeness, a sacred way, a sacred place, a clear place, an ideal, in a sense that lies at the bottom of our hearts and is reflected back to us in religious experience and in religious literature. But as we all know, ideals can be poison if we take them in large quantities or if we take them incorrectly, in other words, if we take them not as ideals, but as concrete realities. Mm. Ideals should inspire us to surpass ourselves, which we need to aspire to, to do if we are to be truly human, and which we can never actually do, exactly because we are truly human. And that's what ideals are tools for inspiration, not realities, in and of themselves. The fact that we have so often missed this point accounts, I think, for the story, history of religion and human civilization. Ideals become poison when we believe in them too literally, when we berate ourselves and others for not measuring up. No one measures up and no one ever will. That's the nature of ideals, that's their beauty. So at the best, and if rightly understood, ideals ought to make us pretty light, pretty light-hearted. <laughs> uh, they give a sense of direction, which is comforting, and since they are by nature impossibilities, why worry? Just keep trying. Someone else? Um, the 
life as it appears by implication in the texts of any religious tradition is this kind of an idea. You know, we stay in united obedience with our teacher forty years, living peacefully day by day, hearing the sounds of the bells, deep in meditation or prayer, in the mountains among the clouds and forests, living in harmony and calmness. Well underneath it may be like this, but up above, in our conscious world where we live, what we call our lives, it really never looks like that. What is the monastic life really like? Anyone else? I've been living in a Zen community for about 20 years, and I've developed some thoughts on the subject. Our community isn't exactly a monastic community, of course, but it is a res residential religious community where people come to live their lives for many years. And I think what we've experienced and come to understand over time turns out to be fairly typical of monastic or long-term residential religious communities. Somebody else? I won't pick anyone, just when you're ready. I want to speak of a series of stages in monastic life as a way of describing what happens in what that life and what kinds of problems come up. Of course, there aren't any stages, or the stages happen simultaneously or in no particular order, and one goes through man them many times. Further, people, even people who share a taste for a religious life for one reason or another, are very different. No setting forth of stages could possibly do justice to the variety of people's experience on the path. And this is another sometimes violent preconception that there is a definite, def how do you say? Delineated. delineated path and that things happen in the same way and in the same order for everyone. Still, systematic thinking has its virtues and there are some general tendencies of most of us can notice and recognize, at least to some extent. So let me speak of eight stages of monastic life. First, the honeymoon, second, the disappointment or betrayal, third, the exploration of commitment, fourth, commitment and flight, fifth, the dry place, sixth, appreciation, seventh, love, and finally, letting go of monastic life altogether. Okay, so, does this sound familiar? <laughs> so, um, Sometimes people say, is yoga a religion? And right away everybody gets uptight and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, but actually everything we're doing is religious practice. Um, we're all religious. When we're kids, we have a religious feeling for life. We have a sense that there is something so much deeper 
uh, happening in life. And then uh, it gets educated out of us uh, pretty quickly, unless you go to a Steiner school, mm-hmm. then you're okay. <laughs> Um, but I think we all know that underneath the amazing careers we have or uh, our families or all the stuff we've done that uh, there's some deeper life going on there that's underneath what you can think about and I think sometimes why all deep religious traditions have at their core a meditative experience is because being quiet, whatever way you do that, uh, brings us back in touch with that part of life that doesn't have anything to do with language, time, planning. Like when we chant at the beginning, Vande Gurunam Charanadavinde, the last part of that chant I, I've always loved, which is seeing Patanjali, which is you, as both a stainless white serpent, that's perfect, but then Abahu Purushakaram, from the shoulders up, a human being. I've always loved this image. Because we're all a stainless and pure, and also we're a total catastrophe. <laughs> Just open your mouth, <laughs> and you'll see. But I think because sometimes we get so focused on getting ahead, making the right decisions, analyzing what we think, thinking about what we think, rethinking about what we think, then doubting our decisions, and then thinking about how we're doubting our decisions about what we think, and then thinking about doubting what we think about doubting, and then over time we lose touch with just that quiet space. That's quiet space that has not so much content in it. So that we're up here all the time, running around managing things. Like the tip of an iceberg. And I think all of us know that we've had experiences in our life where you have a crisis and you can't solve it. By thinking about it. You can't, you can't get out of the locked box that's locked from the outside. And I think we've also had experiences where you're sleeping at night and you have a profound dream and you wake up in the morning and you can't explain the dream but you know that something shifted. Like tectonic plates, you know. Sometimes in the dark, the plates shift, and it had nothing to do with your analysis of the situation. And so in our yoga practice, in our religious life, we're trying to have a relationship with that level. With that level. And then renunciation just happens naturally. The other thing that I wanted to say about this section is um, even if you don't realize what your spiritual path is, 
like someone says, oh, are you a Buddhist? Are you a yogist? But then uh, sometimes if you don't even know how to respond, um, you do know deep in the feeling body whether you're on a path or not. And when you're not, you can really feel it. You can see it in people's faces when they're not in line with their life. Mm. You can see it. They're out of alignment. You can see it. Has anyone here ever been in that place? (laughs) (laughs) The paradox is, the places where you see it the most tend to be the people in careers who are extremely successful. And I mean success in a kind of more superficial way. And you look in their face, and you can see that it's not fulfilling something really deeply. Like people who make too much money too quickly. Do you have this problem in Denmark, in Copenhagen at all? So uh, last month I was in Silicon Valley. Has anybody ever been there? (laughs) So there's lots of people who made too much money too quickly. They have no idea what to do. Because there's no values holding it together. So, should we read the first stage? Okay. Who wants to read? Does anybody just start reading? The first stage, which is probably typical of the first stage of almost anything, is the honeymoon. A time when you're really thrilled with the life of Monday. The contrast with what we're used to in the world, or what we're fleeing from in the world, is so great that we're in a state of ecstasy. We see the people we're living with as really kind and wonderful. The sounds of the monastery bells, the simple-hearted food, the early morning meditation, the landscape, the weather, the peace and quiet, brilliant teachers and teachings. Really nothing could be better. We are, learn, we are learning about ourselves as a great, great, at a great rate, and we are learning about the Dharma too. So much of what we hear seems absolutely true, seems to be what we sense inside ourselves all our lives without ever really being aware of it or having words for it. We feel relieved and resolved and renewed. We feel as if suddenly and unexpectedly, perhaps in the midst of a great sorrow, we turned around in the middle of our ordinary life and found to our eyes amazement, a brand new life in which all the assumptions and behaviors were different and fresh. Hmm. So, what do you make of that? Does this resonate for anybody? So I'd like to hear from, from you. What's the honeymoon stage? What is that?
Like in the meditation, the first five minutes felt so nice, mm -hmm. just finally sitting down. Yeah. And I want to do this all the time because it feels so good when I sit here. And then five, ten minutes into the practice, things start to ache. And, uh, <laughs> am I really sitting good? And why are we sitting here? And yeah. why do we have to sit so long? <laughs> so it ends. Yeah. Or the yoga practice and you just want to do it every day because it feels so good. And then yeah. you get new postures and you feel that you're getting somewhere. Yeah. And then suddenly you don't get anywhere. You realize you're not getting anywhere. Right. Then you hate it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but we're still in the honeymoon. <laughs> you're getting ahead. <laughs> Michael's the best. I love when he comes to town. It's so great. And then five minutes later, I hate him. Why does he teach the same thing? <laughs> when is this going to end? Ring the bell already. <laughs> Somebody else, honeymoon. Has anyone here ever been in a honeymoon? Mm -hmm. It's also when you, when you have a child. Yeah. Like the first three weeks you're in this baby bubble, it's just, everything yeah. is just completely perfect and yeah. pink and, you know, and then suddenly after three weeks of always you get so tired. Yeah. You don't get tired the first few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's just so weird. Exactly. All up on some hormones or whatever and then yeah. you crash. You crash. I just love that look at a cafe, and you see that oftentimes, you know, it's, oh, it's our first trip to a cafe, we're going to come out with the baby, the baby, and you look at them, I've got three kids, and I think, oh, it's just going to suck so <laughs> It's all so beautiful right now, isn't it? <laughs> Soon, you're not going to sleep, yeah. you're not going to know what's day or night. Yeah. And then they turn into a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about our daycare for our children and the first time we were there we thought it was just great in the first period. It was just wonderful and great and and then suddenly you start to realize, oh, it's not perfect. And, yeah. So, but it's also interesting to see how it's just stages. Yeah. Why do you think we need the honeymoon? I mean, if we're so mature, we should just, like, not be into honeymoons anymore. <laughs> but you see adults just fall head over heels for other people, and you think, oh my god, they're a teenager again. <laughs> and they're about to crash. But it doesn't matter. I was just thinking that it's opening something up inside of us, maybe. Yeah. But it feels like that. Mm -hmm. Something that's there, that we are keeping closed. Yeah. And then when the honeymoon comes, it's... We have a possibility to get into it. Yeah. Ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe we wouldn't go deep into anything if we didn't have that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, a bit the same point. It opens like it gives you that courage to have perseverance afterwards because it, it doesn't last like that, but because you have that sense or like shock of energy in a way, which yeah. is. It, uh, it's opening up channels to strive for it again, or to to know that there's there's something more. Yeah. Somebody else. Yeah. I'm thinking that it could be a way of reassuring ourselves that what we've been thinking about must be really great, and now we're into it. We have this 
need for reassuring ourselves that it is actually great and now we're here and oh, everything's fantastic mm -hmm. for a while and then it ends again. Yeah. Is anybody here romantic? <laughs> <laughs> no, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the men are nodding and the women are just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the interesting things about romantic love is that romantic love always happens in a triangle. There's you, there's the situation you're in, and then there's a third possibility. It's always like that. Did anybody see the movie The Titanic? <laughs> That's what the whole movie's about, right? So if you look at like romantic, if you look at you know romance in Hollywood films, it's like this too, right? There's always this triangle. There's you, situation you're in, or the main characters in, and then this other possibility. And the more romantic the story is, the more that other possibility is an impossibility. Like, has anyone here had have been in love with someone that's impossible? <laughs> and there's more lust. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's interesting about when we think about the most romantic stories is that they never happened. So, thinking of the Titanic. Has anyone seen the Titanic? The film, the Titanic. So this movie really fascinated me. Because in the Titanic, it's a recollection from an elderly person about this incredible romantic story. But were they ever together in a relationship? No. <laughs> and that's what allows it to stay an ideal. Right? So this is what happens with religious and spiritual practice is that we set up these ideals, and even if we see that there's cracks in it, we don't look at them. We can put all kinds of things aside just to have some ideal that's impossible to reach. Last night I said, you know, two things that I, I think we need to really look at. One is this term enlightenment, and the other is happiness, mm. as the pinnacle ideal. Mm. So this is also a kind of romance that I think all of us need to wake up from. Mm -hmm. It was good to have for a while. And what I see in spiritual practice is there's you, there's the life you're in, and then the third is usually a spiritual tradition and a teacher from a culture that's not your culture. Mm -hmm. right. You see the way they move as an Indian person, or as a Japanese person, or as a Tibetan person, and then it's just so much better. <laughs> and that's also part of the honeymoon, is they're going to solve some hole in the center of my life. And the deeper the hole is at the center of my life, the higher up they become as an ideal. 
Yes. Um, but I was thinking in terms of spiritual practice with this honeymoon period. Mm -hmm. In terms of my own experience, not so much oh, I want to be like that ideal, but more my initial sense that was extremely strong and felt like, yeah, honeymoon is a nice word, yeah. or being high or something, yeah. for like three months. And, and it came kind of without practice beforehand. It just came and then... Yeah. I don't feel in that stage anymore, yeah. and so I kind of have had this sense of oh, that's where I should be, or that's yeah. where I will be again. Or, but then, would you see it as ah, oh, you're never going to get there again because it's just an ideal now? Or, well, I we won't get there yet. But one of the things Norman Fisher talks about in this essay is how stages you cycle through them. Yeah. And we'll have the honeymoon phase again and again and again and again and again. Mm. Hopefully all of us will. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're romantic. <laughs> so likewise with your practice, I think we all sometimes get into phases, and you'll probably recognize which phase you're in mm. as we go through this essay, or it's like maybe the dry place. <laughs> um, but it's okay, because it's a phase you're cycling through, and you'll come back through the honeymoon phase, and it'll fall apart again. Mm. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, Carl Jung has this term I like called circumambulation, which means uh, not going around in a circle, but every time you go around in the circle, you go up a little. So that actually, it seems like you're cycling, but you actually don't get back to the same place again. There's a little more wisdom, just a little. <laughs> So that it feels like, oh, I'm cycling through this again, but actually, you're not going to do it exactly the same way again. Right. Like, um, relationships. Has anybody been in a relationship and you think, oh my god, I'm in the same relationship again. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Married to my mother for a fourth time. <laughs> but actually, it's, it's not exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any any other comments before we, we keep going? I was thinking about what you said earlier about caring for things. Yeah. But eventually, yeah, the world comes at us with things that we've never met before, yeah. and going mm -hmm. into them mm -hmm. necessarily the honeymoon phase will yeah. appear there. Yeah. So it will come. All the time, again yeah. and again. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you want to care for things, yeah. in a way this is a way to... This is a path. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because so much of the time I think we can think about religious practice or meditative practice not as caring about things, but actually as taking a break from things. Mm -hmm. But the paradox is actually, as you get more and more still, more and more arises. But from that place you can take care with what arises. Oh, boredom is arising. How do I take care of boredom? Agitation is arising. How do I take care of agitation? An old injury is arising. 
how do I take care of this injury? As opposed to, you know, 1991. I'm just going to exhale through it. <laughs> well, some Italian guy is counting. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, did I say that? Yeah. Yeah, I also uh, got to think about social movements mm-hmm. and how you could have these romantic periods. And uh, then I was thinking, like, that you don't have like an othering master, often mm-hmm. just in the West. And then what happens with these movements mm-hmm. as as the romantic phases go into more uh, like ordinary or even dry spaces. If mm-hmm. you have some reflections on, on those two things. How this applies to social movements. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that so much. But I will think about it as we go through this. Yeah, yeah it's interesting to think about this not just personally, mm-hmm. but in, in terms of our society. Okay, um, I thought we could have a little break and then keep going. Uh, maybe some time for chocolate. Or... <laughs> what do you do? What do you do on break in Denmark? <laughs> What's that? Meditate. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, before we jump in, could we just practice? <coughs> Standing up and sitting down a little bit. Um, when we're in a, a community of practitioners, uh, sometimes it's easy to just uh, get into this space of, oh, this is a community, or I'm not in a community. Um, uh, we make the idea of community so big. But actually, when I say sangha or community, what I mean is just uh, this space that we share in together. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we're invested in our space that we share together. When you practice, it's not just for you. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but when you come into this space, how you move, how you breathe, how you communicate with others, is all part of practice, and it affects everybody else in the room. And because it's like that out there, mm. we really train in this space mm. to really work with our habits. Mm. So when you sit in meditation and you sit really, really still, you're sitting also for the person who's beside you. Mm. It's not just for you mm. and for the person behind you. <coughs> I've told this story before, so I apologize if I've told it, but when when I was um, uh, on a retreat a few years ago in the wintertime uh, with my teacher, there was an old man who was ill, and he came to the retreat center, and uh, I was assisting him. I was assisting my teacher. And he came and said, could I come and sit for some of the retreat? So I asked, because he sat with her many, many years. So I asked her, is it okay if he just pops in? He lived in the neighborhood and wasn't a resident during the retreat. She said, oh, of course. He said, I'm just going to come and sit for the morning. He was really old. Mm-hmm. Like, you know some people, they're so old you can't tell how old they are. 
So um, he came and um, so he sat all morning. And then we had lunch. And then he was there in the afternoon, <laughs> sitting all afternoon. And ten days went by. And he was there every single session. He sat there. So at the end, we had a big circle you know, uh, where we share what our experience was. And someone said to him, how come you were here for 10 days? And I said, oh, you were just going to sit for one morning. He said, oh, well, when I came in, I was sitting next to this young guy who was 20. He seemed 20. And he was so agitated, he couldn't sit still. So I said to myself, I'm just going to sit here until he's still. <laughs> That's the spirit of the practice. <laughs> so next time you get on your mat and there's some person there, it's their first class, you practice in a way that will support their, <clears throat> their downward dog, their upward dog. Or you're doing up your shoes. Not in a self-conscious way, but you do up your shoes in a way that will help keep them in the energy of their practice. So that how we move around also we're aware of how it affects the people around us. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought we could just practice standing up and sitting down mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make it a little formal. And again, if you're not used to form and you think it's weird, it's okay. But just uh, check it out and see what it catches in your own experience. Um, so, very simple. When, um, when I stand up, I'll just demonstrate. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to set up my cushion. So the space is really nice. And then I'm going to bow. Okay. Let's try. And we're going to do this every time we sit. All week. so so much. Usually when you meet somebody you you're president, you know. Want to be president. Okay? But I, I don't know how many of you know this, but the, the handshake is something like two centuries old. And it it, uh, it came in human society at the same time that guns did. Handguns. And a handshake was designed to show that you don't have a weapon. It's actually kind of interesting. Uh, but for those of you who travel, I know many of you have traveled to countries where there's bowing. Um, bowing can become a really beautiful practice. And so I really encourage you when you're bowing to really put your practice into it. Okay? So when you bow, um, the hands come up by the nose. And when you bow, just just for the next couple of days, just slow it down so you feel like you're giving everything to your bow. Just gently just give everything to the bow. 
and just feel what that's like in your in your body. Uh, I grew up Jewish, and in the Jewish, if you haven't figured that out yet, but in the Jewish <laughs> tradition, you don't bow to anything or anybody. <laughs> Bowing is like against the rules. You don't bow. Um, but the funny thing is, actually, uh, in Judaism, during prayers, there's a lot of bowing, even though it's not really bowing. They just pretend it's not bowing. Um, so for me, it took a while to actually feel what bowing... It's like if you're Catholic and you have sex. <laughs> That's another workshop. Anyway. Um, so just to feel that you're bowing and you're really putting yourself into it. Um, okay? So, uh, and one way to just put yourself into it is to slow it down. So let's turn to face our cushion. Bow to the cushion. Sincerity. And then we'll turn around. The next bow is to the community. And then you sit down. Doesn't that feel nice to do that? Uh, okay. Can we make it a little bit more complicated? <laughs> is, that, is that enough for today? Or can we add a tiny bit more? Okay, I'm going to add one more thing. So, um, when we're practicing and it's not formal, so let's say it's not the time when we're doing our sitting and walking meditation, um, so let's say that you're in the room, I've gone to the bathroom, and I come back in. So I'll, I'll bow, and then when I turn around to bow, again, whoever is right across from me, or on either side of me, they bow with me. Want to try? And then I sit down. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So, um, um, Michaela, do you want to demonstrate? So, Michaela, sh she's gone to get um, sweet treats. <laughs> she's come in. <laughs> so, when she goes to bow to her cushion, whoever's right in front of her when she bows, bows to her. And when she turns around, if you're on either side of her or across from her, you'll bow when she makes this bow. Yeah. So, the reason why I mention this is not, not just so that we can all be formal. But what's nice about this is then when you're in the space, you're aware of practicing as a community. So, because sometimes what happens is, is you're sitting here and you're just so in your zone... <laughs> and then all this stuff is going on around you and you just have no clue about what's going on for anybody else or there's someone beside you maybe they're having a hard time or someone who's so joyful and you're just not tuned in at all or this is the worst it drives me crazy is <laughs> people who they just sit there like this <laughs> okay. And, yeah. 
I call them bliss bunnies. <laughs> and so what happens is you're, you're like so in your meditation that you're not here. You get a headache from that. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, the nice thing about this practice of bowing when other people are coming to sit down is you can't go anywhere. You're right here. When someone comes to sit down and you, you acknowledge it. So can we try that for the next few days yeah. together? Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of it's kind of fun. And at the end of six days, if you're like, oh, "That's not for me," don't ever have to bow again. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you're confused, so the rule I always tell our song is: when in doubt, bow. Everything will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Questions before we keep going. It's not a question. But it's oh, yeah. We talked in the break about how, and, and maybe it's not a new talk, but how um, having a technique or a form can sort of get uh, you can get caught up in that, and it's the form on um, you get you don't you don't remember what's inside the form, yeah. what the whole idea of the form is. Yeah. So when we do this, I feel it's much more sort of applicable directly to the way that we are. In the world, yes. That you know, you see the world. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. not about me. But it's about it is about me, but it's also yeah. about. So I think yeah. that's really helpful. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Non-stop. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But is there any possibility to go like totally wrong, to go like really backwards, and and uh, can it can for example. Mixing some techniques cause damage? Yes. To you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and? Yeah. So just listen carefully for the next few days. And yeah. It won't cause any damage. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm teach I don't know if any of you follow my website, but I'm teaching a workshop in November yeah. with a neuroscientist who's a really close friend named Willoughby Britton who's just an amazing person. And she's a neuroscientist that researches people who practice meditation in ways that uh, end up uh, causing them trouble. And uh, does really amazing work. Anyways, she got a huge grant to do this study where she interviewed, uh, I don't remember how many, like a thousand meditators who'd had bad experiences. And then 40 Buddhist teachers and then the Dalai Lama heard about this, so he invited her to come present her work. So he presented her, re his, her research about how many people are having bad experiences meditating. What was her name again? Willoughby. How is written? Oh, W-I-L-L-O-U-G-H-B-Y. Britain, B R I T T O N. It's on the website. Yeah. It's on the okay. website. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so she she presented this to the Dalai Lama, and so she said to the Dalai Lama, "What do you think? Like, look at how many people are going on retreat and having really bad experiences." And uh, he said, he told her, 
that he was just in South India at a monastery that had invited him there to bless their temple. And he was sitting in the service as everything was getting prepared for him to come bless the temple. And he turned to the person next to him and said, where's your library? And they said, oh, we don't have a library. And he said, I'm not blessing the temple. That was his answer. In other words, that there's so much of meditation being taught by people who don't know the maps, don't know the library. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's really important that study and practice go together. You know, like in Ashtanga Yoga, Patabhi Joshi used to always say, 99% practice, 1% theory. But no one ever got the theory. Mm. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so it's true. Um, so, so the problem with this is the theory actually starts to change how you're framing your practice. And the practice then informs how the theory matures. So that's why you might think, oh, this morning we're all practicing, and then now we have to do the theory. But it's not really like that. Because this afternoon, as we're studying this, it's a practice. And it will influence how you practice. And that's why it's important that both of these really work together. Okay? And that's an important piece in terms of understanding meditation practice. Is that the, the theory really influences how you think. So if you have an idea that, oh, we're meditating because we, want it, we don't want to get reborn again, you might want to have a different kind of meditation practice. <laughs> but don't ask me what I should teach you for that. <laughs> Especially if you want to be reborn a man. <laughs> don't be I was. Um, what, 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 happens, what happens to these people who have bad experiences? What, what, is, what, what kind of experiences are they? Oh. Well, that's a whole right? other subject. Okay. Which we could go on. I'm known for tangents. Um, but I'll say in a short version, um, a lot of people go on meditation retreats and have trouble. And it hasn't. it's kind of like the secret of the Vipassana world. So she exposed it. And... Um, so she went to all kinds of well-known teachers, and they all said the same thing, which is people who have psychological trouble, <clears throat> ranging from neurosis to psychosis, in meditation practice, all the teachers said the same thing. Well, that's because they had some kind of childhood trauma. And then it comes out in the meditation practice. And... When she started interviewing people, she realized quickly that that's not true. Mm -hmm. That there are a small percentage of people where that's true. Mm -hmm. But also, that's not true. There's a lot of people who've had good, solid psychology, no trouble at home, no trauma, and they're having hard times in sitting. And the Dalai Lama's comment was basically saying, they're entering states of mind that are... Um, mapped out traditionally in stages of insight practice. So um, this is something that people teaching meditation have to be more educated on. But that's all I'll say about it. Kind of.
Yes. I'm just wondering about all the, um, I mean, this whole explosion of mindfulness yeah. uh, teachings that are not based in ethics and are not based in a tradition in that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that a lot of people are teaching mindfulness meditation without actually doing it themselves. Yes. Without having a meditation practice. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. I mean, psychologists yeah, and all kinds yeah, of Yeah, well, this is what Willoughby and I are teaching in November. Yeah. Okay. It's called The Promise and Perils of Mindfulness. She wanted to call it Mick Mindfulness. <laughs> um, like the Ronald McDonald with the big M. Yeah. Mindfulness. Um, glad we didn't do that. Um, but yeah, we're teaching together this workshop on how to translate her research to clinicians who teach mindfulness. Who may or may not have a practice. And the promises of it and the perils. But we're going on a tangent. Right? Let's try and come back. It's interesting. Yeah. We could talk about capitalism too. <laughs> okay. Um, I really want to do this next stage before our day ends. Is that okay? Uh, anybody can read. This stage can last for some time. but it usually comes to end in fairly short order. We enter the second stage, the stage of disappointment or betrayal. Why did I pick this stage? Of course, <laughs> what happiness we lose is the sense of contrast with the world at large, and what's inside us becomes stronger than our perception of the newness of our surroundings. Whatever festering problems we have, known and unknown, that were held in abeyance while we marvel at the greatness of the religious life, now come out in full-blown, and rather than seem, see them for what they are, our own internal contradictions, we project them outward onto the community. We begin to see the truth that there are plenty of imperfections. The food gets tiring, the people aren't as nice as they were a few months ago, the many restrictions of our lifestyle becomes wearing. <clears throat> we begin to notice the lack of creativity and energy in our fellow practitioners, and especially in some old-timers. We're a little sleep-depraved and weary. We begin to notice that there are two, uh, that there are many baffling and unacceptable aspects to our teachings. In fact, on the one hand, the teachings sound purposely confusing and incomprehensible, and on the other hand, they sound suspiciously, in many cases, like the religion we grew up in and fled from. The teachers turn out to be a lot less fantastic than we first imagined. We're seeing them stumble and make mistakes, and if we haven't seen it, we've heard about it. Or if we haven't heard about it or seen it, then the teachers are perhaps a little too perfect. There's something suspicious or even coercive about their piety. Are they really real? Little by little, a sense of disillusionment, betrayal, comes over us. Somebody else? I can read all of these perceptions, as disturbing as they are, are in fact quite true. So when we bring them up, no one tries to talk us out of them. All timers in the community may become defensive, but they can't really disagree. Yet the truth of all this doesn't really account for what we're feeling, cheated and disappointed. The only thing that accounts for, for that is our inner pain. We were feeling for a moment better, redeemed, and now suddenly we feel even worse than when we came. And eventually we realize that imperfect though the community is, and it may even be worse than imperfect, maybe in some ways actually toxic, 
It's us, not it, that is the source of our present suffering. It can take a while to come to this. Sometimes a very long time if there are, as there have been in many communities of all religious traditions over the years, flagrant cases of betrayal by leaders or other important community members. But whether it comes soon or only after many years, and whether its causes are spectacular or quiet, it's something we have to come to on our own. Because when we're deeply disappointed with the community, it's hard for long-term committed community members to point out that it's our eye, not the visual object, that's cloudy. They can't tell us this because they know we won't hear it. They know that if they tell us this, this they will only appear to us to be defending the status quo, and we will mistrust them for it. And besides, many of them don't understand that this is the case anyway. Many of them are themselves confused about the community and where it and they begin and end. So for all these reasons, the older members of the community tolerate us and our views, and there is very little they can do to help us through this stage. If we feel this sense of betrayal or disappointment acutely enough, and especially if, it's a, if a difficult personal incident happens to us when we're in the midst of it, we may very well leave the community in hope, which happens both seldom, and when it does, it's a real tragedy. If this doesn't happen, then it's likely that after enough time goes by, we'll realize what's really going on. Right. So, I think we all know that this is the state of our practice all the time. Moments where we're up for anything, whatever comes our way, we can take it. And then moments when we doubt the whole practice. What on earth am I doing? Another backbend? Another period of sitting still? And then we project it onto other people. Oh God, they've been doing this for like 10 years now. And look at them. They haven't got it together. And we don't see that we're projecting our own internal doubts. And I think this is true for almost all of you in the room, because most of you I've known for a long time. Mm -hmm. going to get on to a decade soon, mm -hmm. coming here, and a lot of you have been here from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so actually with our maturity, we have to sometimes look back at our process and see, oh yeah, I'm going through these phases all the time. Mm -hmm. All the time. I'm committed, and then I'm not there. Faith, and then doubt. And sometimes you can't talk to anybody about it. And also, um, I think this is the job of yoga teachers. Mm. You know, sometimes I think this is the difference between a yoga instructor and a yoga teacher. Because a yoga teacher has been at it for a while. Mm. And they can see the phase that somebody's in, and they can support it. And in a way, I think the primary job of a good yoga teacher is just being able to support somebody when they're falling out of the honeymoon phase, so they don't run away. But just to hold someone in it, because you're in it also. How many times in one sitting meditation? Are you there, 
and then you want to run away, and then you're there again, and then you want to run away. And you don't even see it anymore as running away, because you can work with it. But at one time, you might have literally gotten up and ran away. There's this great story about this where a husband and wife are on a silent retreat with a great Zen teacher named Shinra Suzuki. And um, the husband's going for an interview with him. And then um, she says, oh, can I take your spot? Because I'm really having a hard time. I want to leave the retreat. He says, okay. So she goes in and sits down in front of him and says, I'm leaving. She's got her car keys. And he says, you're free to leave. But there's nowhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) And some of you know I teach silent retreats, and I've seen this all the time, where someone get their keys, they're like, I'm leaving. Okay, you're free to go. They get to the parking lot, and then they just break down crying. And they don't leave. And then they come back. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> and then they're ready. Because they realize, where am I going to go? So that's our job, is to hold ourselves and to hold others in that place where we want to run away. But mm-hmm. there's also that, or I think that's a, a paradox of being critical enough to see whether it's practice that supports us or um, it's practice that doesn't. That, mm-hmm. you know, it, like in a, any pose that, you know, it's not all poses you stay in. You have to yeah. recognize what is pain that is telling you yeah. this is something you have to leave yes. and what is pain that is telling you to stay here and breathe with that and don't run away. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked about that before, the, yeah. the need of having a good teacher that helps sure. you guide you through that. Yeah. Um, because I think that's yeah. a part of the... Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. that's true. We were talking about this at lunch, how, how many meditators... You know, I find this a lot in the Buddhist communities, of how much the teachers talk about the body. So much about the body. But then you watch people sitting, mm-hmm. and it's a mess. Mm-hmm. It's a disaster. The posture's a disaster. Mm-hmm. This real unconsciousness around how that translates into technique. And the opposite truth, how many yogis <laughs> really work with the body, but then actually when you try to get them still, they have no idea how to work with their body. Mm-hmm. And their mind. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we have to use our wisdom. Oh, is this good for me? Is this not good for me? Mm-hmm. But then also, sometimes we've done that, we've made a decision, okay, I'm going to really check this out. And then there's a point where you have to be able to stop running away. Like, I could come here and say, okay, let's bow. And maybe six years ago, it's not time. Mm. Maybe now it's time. But mm. Okay, I'm not going to run away when I see a bow. <laughs> Next year, we're going to light incense. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're all going to shave our head. <laughs> two years and then we're going to wax <laughs> the men are going to wax I should stop that <laughs> but 
couldn't this face, if you're in a wrong path, couldn't it, or maybe that was what you were saying also, mm -hmm. but couldn't it also mm -hmm. be a point where you're actually leaving? Yeah, because that's sure. the right yeah. thing to do. Yeah, it's like dating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? You have a great honeymoon and then you realize, nope. Yeah. <laughs> this is not for me. Mm -hmm. But what we're getting into here is when you decide, yes, I'm actually going to go for this. I mean, the whole thing is being in practice that supports that inner, inner that intuition. Yeah. That is your sort of, that non-verbal knowing that, yeah. oh, this is, yes, I know yeah. that I'm running away, or I know that I... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I was talking earlier about the teacher pouring tea into the cup yeah. and it overflowing. Like, when you can recognize that in yourself. Yeah. You know, I'm pouring and pouring and pouring. Like, how many of you have said over the years, Okay, I've done second series now. <laughs> Will I be happy if I do third series? Oh, or some of you haven't asked it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then to remember, there's eight limbs of practice. And as they mature, you can bring the quality of your practice to anything. Maybe you'll practice Ashtanga Yoga, maybe you'll practice sitting for a decade, mm. and then you'll see, oh, I can bring the same kind of attention mm. to anything. So I'm going to start learning piano now. Mm. Because I can really be there for it. And maybe you will. So, I'll stop here before the community <laughs> falls apart at Yoga Mudra. Oh, I don't need this anymore. Right? <laughs> I'm going to sit at sweet treats all day, and I'm just really going to be present with each person as they come in. <laughs> it's going to be my practice.